Hello, dear listener. I hope you're enjoying your summer as much as Ike and I are here sipping our margaritas poolside. We've picked out an extra special classic episode to fill the void until we're back next week with an all-new Underpowered Hour. Until then, enjoy the show. It's the Underpowered Hour on this week's show, Spectre Defender with extra ropes for extra money. We talk to Will Hendrick, the Defender of Defenders, and a listener question about a dim headlight. And now, without further ado, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thank you to everyone joining us today. I'm the positive ground electrical system to Stephen's negative ground electrical system, the Sparky Dashboard of Podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online on Facebook, Instagram, at Pangolin 4x4. Let's get started. All right, Ike. So, in the news this week, the uh, one of, I know you're such a fan of Land Rovers with um, hemp ropes wrapped around various parts of the uh, <laughs> bodywork and roof. One of the most famous uh, ropied up uh, Land Rovers, uh, the Spectre. Uh, Defender, which did the Spectre Defender really popularize that like connect a rope to the roof rack and then down to the bumper and then back up to the roof rack in a way that you would never do with a real rope because that would be such a bitch to connect and disconnect and I'm not sure where that started, but uh, I, I picture that trend continuing to the point where people are just weaving dream catchers between the bull bar and roof rack <laughs> with uh, with hemp rope. With hemp ropes, yeah. At some point, there will be a Land Rover made completely out of hemp rope. Uh, there won't be any aluminum left. Simply a hemp rope version <laughs> of the car, or I guess you could just you could just cover it with like a spray glue and just uh, sort of dust hemp rope bits all over it, and uh, it sort of look like a rattan chair maybe they can add it to that line of like rusted uh effects that that uh, one company sells for land rovers oh yeah 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 oh i love the rust effect anyways uh, that aside the specter defender the most ropiest of all defenders um there is one of the actual movie cars actually one of the cars from the uh from the film specter in celebration of now another bond movie uh, coming out that specter movie was how long ago was it five or six years ago wasn't it it's been a minute. Seems like a long time. Anyway, so this uh, this car is uh, for sale. Originally, the car was about uh, 60,000 uh, pounds, give or take. Um, now on sale uh, for the low price of 250,000 uh, pounds. Seems uh, reasonable. Right? It isn't Seems the one... <laughs> It isn't the one where the guy sits on top of the give me roof two. and can drive. Give me you two. want to? Okay. Yeah, All give right. me I'll two. I'll sign you up. I'll sign so, you up. So is this a car that was like wrecked in the film? And then it, because I remember not that awfully long ago that one of the Spectre Defenders that was like 
mangled. Like every mm-hmm. panel was smashed, mm-hmm. came up for sale. And uh, I think they were also asking a crazy amount of money for that car. It was like a Crew Cab 110, I believe. Yeah, this is also a Crew Cab 110 and uh, roped it up. Uh, it does not look any more smashed up than a normal factory fresh Defender uh, does. The same sort of rippled dents in the panels I that come to the factory. I wondered if they repaired it. Oh, I don't know. This Maybe. could be your chance to get a genuinely wrecked and rebuilt Spectre Defender. Spectre Defender, yeah. Not that I'm saying that that car is that way, because I don't know for sure, but uh, yeah, they use several cars in the movie. Yeah, I, I want to say there was like as many as 15 uh, cars built for uh, for the film. Um, and the one that came before Spectre, they had that silver Defender that uh, Moneypenny drove, and there was actually like a dude on the roof, right? With like a, like a dune buggy seat up there that was actually driving so they could get the, through the windshield shots or something or mm-hmm. i don't know some crazy uh some crazy bond uh defenders um it's uh it's pretty cool anyways it, i don't know if you have 15 defenders and you're yeah. selling them for a quarter million dollars a piece yeah goes a long way towards defraying the cost of uh, uh, uh that's how they'll realize uh, <laughs> profit on the Spectre film. They're still trying to recoup uh, the cost of, of that film. Uh, well, you know, what a perfect way to celebrate the new Bond film, but to purchase an extraordinarily expensive uh Defender from one of the previous Bond films. And I believe that I read somewhere as well that some of the new, uh, the the No Time to Die uh, Defenders will eventually be sold as well. Uh, they have mud painted onto them, which is kind of interesting. They're, uh, the mud is like, it's paint, and it's painted right onto the cars. Uh, and there are some super wrecked ones of those as well, so maybe you could, you could pick up one of those. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so this uh, this afternoon, this evening, uh, we're going to have our good friend, uh, Will Hendrick, on the show uh, to talk about uh, importing, exporting, and more importantly, uh, defending uh, defenders, as uh, Will is uh, probably most famous for uh, his big case where the government tried to seize a bunch of defenders, uh, or did, in fact, seize them, and Will, um, you know, got uh, got together the legal case to uh, to help those owners get those back. And now he runs uh, in, in a sort of import business, and I've and, uh, got lots of great questions for him about uh, sort of how to bring those cars in and stuff in a, in a reasonable way. Yeah, yeah. Importation can be uh, super tricky, and um, you know, Will has uh, certainly been there and done that with respect to uh, bringing in cars legally. Yeah, and uh, you know, thing. avoiding some pretty serious pitfalls, which could avoid or which could involve the the seizure of your vehicle, the yeah, crushing the of crush your vehicle, your the vehicle. Uh, you know, the fines associated with that. You know, you could watch it get crushed on YouTube by an excavator yeah. or whatever. It's really not. Yeah, they really take like the the government takes a lot of joy in crushing your uh, your defender. It's I'd say it's a, glee. You yeah. know, like I, and uh, I I don't know if you've noticed, but other countries around the world have kind of followed suit. Yeah. So the Philippines has yeah. been promoting videos of them yeah. smashing and crushing um, illegally imported cars and uh, and motorcycles. You know, they. Have have like a bulldozer driving over a whole line of illegally imported motorcycles. And, uh, you know, I, for one, am so glad that someone is protecting us from these uh, foreign vehicles that are invading our shores. Yeah, that's right. What, exactly. what, what would we do? What would we do with these uh, wonderfully efficient and modern vehicles that people are trying to import that... Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's uh, it's a little silly. 
Yeah, it is a little silly. All right, well let's uh, let's start up the uh, the podcast uh, guest machine. Uh, I think we're running it today on a uh, combination of uh, high fructose corn syrup. Stephen, I'm going to have to interrupt you. I actually uh, have just gotten a call. I've got uh, a customer that uh, I've uh, I've got to leave and help. He's got a family of possums in his doormobile. I've got to take care of this. Um, It's uh, it's really important. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let you do the interview by yourself, but. I'll be back. I'll be okay. back. All right. Okay. I'm going to jump into the uh, interview then. Uh, good luck with that. Make sure to bring your uh, possum gloves, and uh, uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Never without them. See you soon. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. It has been uh, hotly anticipated, I think, in the community, if you will, uh, to have uh, you on the show. So thanks for taking the time uh, to sit down and chat this afternoon. No, it's great. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I look, I've been looking to it, uh, forward to it for a little while now. Yeah, excellent. So I, a question we always start off with, why Land Rovers? Of all, of all the brands in all the world, all the cars that you could be uh, fascinated with, why did you choose the Land Rover? Wow, that's a great question. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm terrible at short stories, so I'll, I'll do my best to keep it abbreviated. But um, I guess my brother and actually my family and I, we, I grew up on a farm here in North Carolina. And so uh, being on a farm, you know, we always had to have four-wheel drive vehicles. Um, just was kind of a necessity for life for getting things done around horses, cattle, um, you know, bailing hay, et cetera. You know, we did all that during the summertime. And uh, my first uh, vehicle was actually a Chevrolet S10 Blazer. And then uh, after that, I had a, an 83 Jeep CJ7. But um, there, was a, there was a kid I went to high school with. He was a senior when I was a sophomore, I guess. And uh, he came driving by one day in a, in a Alpine White 94 Defender 90 soft top. And I was in love. And uh, stopped to look at it one day, chatted with him about it, and just decided that I was going to have one. And it was uh, in college when I actually bought my first Defender, uh, Port Athena Red uh, 94, um, that I actually found uh, online. This was back in the early days of internet. And uh, I was fortunate enough that the gentleman who made the listing had actually put his telephone number. And I did, did my super sleuthing, was able to actually find his telephone number and call him before anybody else had a chance to respond to his ad and i purchased it in albuquerque new mexico okay. I flew I flew out bought it sight unseen and drove it back to north carolina um so that was and then two weeks later after i got it home the transfer case blew up so right well there well, i was gonna that, say it's surprising a, you got all the way home without something yeah. uh, blowing up so well, so uh but um but you know it, it just uh it's just been in love with ever since i um I finished the uh, university and actually went to work for um, Land Rover dealer franchise uh, here in North and South Carolina. At the time, mm-hmm. it was Land Rover Carolina's group. Um, they had four stores, and I was with them for about five years. And um, started off in their Greenville store, transferred to the Asheville store. A short period of time thereafter, was there for a couple of years. I uh, worked in our Columbia store for a period, and then our Land Rover Hilton Head uh, Savannah store. Uh, I was there for the last uh, period uh, that I was with the company. But um, yeah, great experience, great customers. I guess that was the biggest part uh, or the best part of the, the experience for me was just the people that I got to interact with. Um, Landover people seem to be very like-minded and uh, well-traveled and uh, just yeah. great people to chat with in general. Yeah. And yeah. so that was, that was it, it's the people that's kept me drawn to the community, even during the periods where I didn't own a Land Rover, I still went to events and I still had plenty to talk about with people who drove Land Rover. So um, it's been it's been great experience thus far, and I'm just uh, continuing on with it. 
Well, speaking of uh, periods where you didn't own a Land Rover, this is a period where you do own a Land Rover. So a two-part question, what Land Rovers do you have right now? And then maybe the bigger question, the ultimate question, if you will, is what's your, what's your favorite Land Rover if you had to pick one? Oh, wow. Uh, so I, this is not a problem that a lot of people have, but um, I, I keep getting given cars uh, and Land Rovers included. So um, currently I have, uh, let's see, I have three Range Rovers and various classic Range Rovers, mind mm-hmm. you, and vari- various states of repair around my home. Um, I have two Defenders, uh, one of my, my 90, which was my UK runabout, which I've actually only recently imported from the UK. Um, it's actually turned into my regular daily driver now. I just love the truck. It mm-hmm. wasn't something that I expected to fall in love with quite as much, but um, um, ex-British telecom vehicle. And then mm-hmm. um, and then uh, the the other Land Rover that I have, uh, um, I guess we'll call it a collection. It's not really, I don't really think of it that way, but um, is a, it was a gift actually from my my clients in in the, my big case back in um, 2015. It's a it's a, a kind of a rare bird. A, a, it's a Defender that was built by a Land Rover in South Africa during the period uh, which the company was owned by BMW. Right, and uh, it's one of about 400 odd Defender 110s um, that was built with a a BMW M52 engine in it from the factory. Wow. Um, so this is, 2.8 liter inline six cylinder, basically the same engine you would have gotten in a BMW Z3 right. in the late in the late 90s. Um, so yeah, just a very cool car here underneath a, um, a special import permit. It took me uh, a couple of years, a lot of patience uh, to be able to bring it into the U.S., but uh, was uh, able to get a um, granted a special import permit by an HTSA. Um, the only catch to that is is that I'm not able to drive it on the road. Um, it's so, so it spends most of the time in my garage. I do uh, have the ability to take it off road. Um, uh, just, it's just, I can't drive it in, in basically, um, public traffic areas. Right. Um, right. so, and then, uh, and then it'll be, it'll turn 25 years old, um, Halloween of next year, 2022. Uh-huh. And then it will actually become a U.S. road legal. It basically be grandfathered yeah. underneath the, uh, the current regulatory scheme that exists uh, here in the U.S. So around the big case, so, uh, well, of course, you're known, uh, you know, sort of uh, more publicly as the Defender of Defenders, which is, uh, I think, a great uh, a great title. And for the one person listening to this show that may not know uh, about the great uh, defending of Defenders, uh, what what is that about? And uh, And can you talk a little bit about that case? I realize like we said before we started recording, we could probably talk about this for three or four hours um, and certainly have talked about it a lot in the past. But uh, if you could summarize uh, in, a, in a, a short uh, sort of explanation, where did that uh, title come from and what was that case about? Wow. So um, <laughs> back in 2014, there was a, a – actually, it was July of that year, and I was actually working for the state of North Carolina at the time um, – there was online just one day a uh, popped up where everybody was like department of Homeland security just showed up my house and took my truck. And, uh, the, the main website that was involved, that kind of facilitated all the communication was, uh, defendersource.com. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, was had been a member of the site for years, and uh, I was fairly newly minted attorney. I'd only been in practice for a couple of years, and again, at the time I was working for the state of North Carolina. And um, I was just watching this blow up online and um, in the evenings, and then um, you know it was a, a coordinated raid across the entire U.S. from Maine to California and Washington State to Florida, and all parts in between. And you know all these vehicles have been taken and. Um, it just so happened that one of the owners uh, lived five minutes down the road from me here in town. And um, he ran into my brother. I'd never met him before. And my brother said, well, you know, my brother, Will, is an attorney and he used to work for Land River. So he knows these vehicles really well. So you should talk with him. And I get a text message from him and I'm like, oh, great. You know, so um, I just I, I, I went to and said, well, hey, I'll, I'll meet with you after work in the evening and, and I met with the, with the gentleman and I uh, heard about his case and I, and I reviewed the information about his vehicle. And I said, somebody's got this wrong. You know, th- his, um, it was, his vehicle in particular had been claimed by the government to be a, a 2000 model year truck. Right. And in fact, it was um, a much older vehicle, a 1983 vehicle, which I had was able to determine based on the pictures, but proved having inspected it in person. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, uh, I told him that I would help him. I told him that I, I wasn't going to charge him anything. One, because I didn't want to. I mean, if I'd, if I'd passed any other land of owner broken down on the side of the road, I would have stopped to help. Right. It's just, that's this, it's kind of what we do in the community. And, um, and I didn't feel it's any different. In addition to that, I mean, because I was working for the state, there were all types of regulatory requirements because if I was getting paid to do it, then I would have to report to the state. And I just didn't want to mess with it. It was just easier to just say, Hey, I'll, I'll help you out. And so I, I came home that night and uh, was talking to my wife about it and um, uh, slept on it that night. And then I woke up the next morning. And I was like, you know, if I'm if I'm going to help this gentleman, I feel like maybe I should offer to help some of the other folks because yeah, this is really this is not right. Yeah. And uh, and, and my naive thinking at the time was maybe like four or five of the people would reach out to me. And right. I, and I had post I posted it in one place online, and it never occurred to me that that they all would. And so, um, and that, which is what it ended up happening. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, that was a couple months in six months into the case. I actually left my job with the state of North Carolina to work on it full time pro bono for all of the owners. And, uh, six months after that, so just shy of a year into the case, uh, the government came to the table and we had actually ended up settling the case with all the vehicles being returned to the, the owners at no cost to them. Um, and then the government actually paying damages in certain the case where certain of the vehicles had been um, or had you know been damaged you know significantly. Yeah. So um, so yeah. And then after that, you know, my phone just started ringing and hasn't stopped ringing since. But the um, but the, the basic um, idea in that case was that the vehicles were claimed to be much newer than they they were, and yeah. that that because they were claimed to be newer as newer vehicles, they didn't meet. USDOT and US EPA regulatory standards for the import of the vehicle, and therefore they were, you know, claimed to be illegal on that yeah. basis. And so that's that's how that all came about. Wow. And uh, it's it's still a lot of what I, I deal with today, you know, in terms of clients. And I have some varying matters to work on. Um, a couple, even uh, actually more than a couple right now that I've got. I've, if you can look around me, you'd see I have files stacked <laughs> everywhere. Um, so it's a, it's a bit daunting, uh, to manage at times by myself, but, um, you know, it, it does keep me busy and 
um, you know, imports just, just, you know, or dealing with import compliance is just part of what I do. I mean, that is somewhat unprecedented, right? For a, a, an action that large by uh, the government. I mean, how many vehicles uh, did it end up being at the end of the day that they came and got? Uh, so it actually was split into two different cases. All in all, I represented about 50 odd folks um wow. you know and so it was there was a a civil case uh, which involved civil forfeiture and then there was also a criminal case for which vehicles were seized as well mm-hmm. and um the, the criminal case um i wasn't able to get that case settled out until after i settled the civil case mm-hmm. uh with the government so that one uh, it took i can't remember the exact amount of time but it was several more months wow. before i was able to get those vehicles uh released and returned to their owners um uh, several of those vehicles actually ended up being restored in a compound up in Virginia Beach and I actually went and met several of the owners so that they could pick up their vehicles and take them out themselves. And then uh, there were some more that actually were, were stored further down the East Coast. But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's rewarding work. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, getting, getting out of the office is probably my favorite part is get, actually getting to meet and shake hands and, and talk with the owners. Because, again, you know, a, a lot of times it's um, – it's difficult to put a, a you know a face with a name or a voice on the telephone, but um, yeah. you know getting to meet people and interact with them is really is really the best part of the job. How often is something like this happening? Where uh, you know, and obviously I imagine fifty cars at a time that is somewhat uh, rare. But how often is the government uh, or whomever right coming after uh, some of these vehicles? And, and do you feel like? Are Land Rovers more targeted? I know we've heard about getting crushed at the port and things like that, but is it is it really just vehicle importing in general? Do they target Land Rovers, and, and how often is that happening? So there's actually a division within U.S. Customs and Border Protection that actually targets certain types of vehicles. And no, mm. it's not just Land Rovers. Um, you know, one of the big things going on right now are uh, Japanese mini trucks. Oh, okay. um, they're 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 also uh, a source uh, that's being targeted in the past. Um, it concerned, you know, later variations of the R32 and R34 Nissan Skylines. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a big case that actually took place out in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's referred to nowadays as the Kaizo case. Mm. Um, that, it concerned vehicles that were, were imported, um, you know, and the EPA actually ended up taking action against them um, in conjunction with an HTSA. But no, I have cases still involving Landover. To this day that I'm dealing with, um, you know, there are issues with import compliance, you know, issues that have popped up recently with regard to what constitutes a, a restoration. And mm. uh, NHTSA, which is the Naf- National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, can be uh, particular at times about what they consider to be and what not to be uh, a restoration. And um you know, and then if the EPA gets involved, a lot of times with the EPA, it has to do with, you know, the replacement of an engine, uh, which I think is a commonly misunderstood issue mm-hmm. um, when, when people come to come to look at it and come to, you know, to deal with it. But um, and I think a lot of people overlook it when they when they're looking at importing their own vehicles. But, um, you know, 95 percent of what I deal with. Um, especially with you know clients that I'm able to handle shipping for on mm-hmm. on the front end, is just making sure that the vehicle is compliant before it ever leaves right. overseas to come here to the U.S. Because again, there, there's a cost for that up front, but you know the cost will pay dividends on the back end because mm-hmm. 
you know, it, for me to do a, a, a consultation uh, on the front, you know, just to confirm that your vehicle is conforming before it ships to the U.S., you know, it, it's, you know, it's a fraction compared to what it costs to retain me to represent right. you in a, in a either a, a U.S. customs detention or, you know, seizure forfeiture case. Yeah. Um, you know, my uh, my base retainer in that is just shy of five thousand dollars, you know, right. and that's, you know, it's not inexpensive and i and i realize that but again there's considerable amount of time that goes to into defending a vehicle in one of those cases and sure. um you know and again it's not just not just landers mind you again it's, right. there there are other vehicles that are affected as well too but um you know most commonly you know known you know for most people who are looking to import these vehicles is it, this general idea that over 25 year old vehicles, mm-hmm. you know, are, are, are eligible, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of strings attached to that, you know, and a lot of boxes that need to tick. So you can't just generally say, you know, if it's over 25, it can come in. Right. Um, when it, when it comes down to specifics like the engine, you know, if the engine has been replaced or if the engine's not the original engine or, uh, more recently, even if the engine's modified, um, mm. you know, or, or to have say certain, um, emissions components removed from it mm. that can, that can present a bar to, to importation, uh, here to the U S and this is something that, um, while it may not have been enforced in the past for some vehicles and, and I've, cause I get this question, uh, quite commonly from, uh, from people who regularly import, you know, well, you know, they say, well, the EPA or whoever wasn't enforcing that. In right. the past, I'll say just because they weren't enforcing it in the past doesn't mean that they're not enforcing it now. And I can right. tell you that the vehicles will get turned around or seized. Or, when I say turned around, like you know, they may require to be exported right. um, because because of issues like these that are now that are now coming up um, and that have to be have to be addressed and or corrected. Um, but it's much easier to do that type of remedial work before the vehicle leaves to come to the U.S. than it is to do it after the fact. Yeah, sure. And is it is it easier to bring a car in from Mexico or Canada? Is there any... I know they sold Defenders in Mexico up until 2016, until the last Defenders. Obviously, Canada got that very skinny number of North American spec Defenders. That's my Defender as a Canadian spec Defender because I bought it new in Canada. Um, and uh, when... Because I'm from Canada. Um, but is there is there favorability to bringing cars in because obviously Canada has the 15-year rule, not 25 years. So there's all kinds of stuff swimming around uh, up there. Is uh, is it better the same? Are there different things to consider? Uh, I mean, yes and no. So um, we're Canadian. I'll say Canadian imports are concerned. And this is one of the things that I wrote an article for uh, Jalopnik.com. Mm-hmm. Or not wrote. I actually, I was interviewed and mm-hmm. or basically was a heavy contributor to it. But, um, you know, I found that there were a hefty number of vehicles that were being illegally imported to the U.S., not necessarily land rivers, but other vehicles um, that they were they were being driven down from Canada on temporary import permits. So, you know, as a as a as a non U.S. resident, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the way I would I would try to uh, frame this is think of. You know, your your uh, Canadian citizen who has a has a winter residence in Florida. Sure. You know that they would bring a uh, you know this person would bring a vehicle down, and uh, you know underneath the temporary import, but then it would never leave. Right. And um, so it's never been officially imported into the U.S., m- meaning no duties were ever paid because under a temporary import there are no duties paid. Right. And um, so if that vehicle ends up getting found or caught. 
then that person can be liable for all the duties, you know, from the time that it entered the U.S. up to the time, you know, that that seized. Right. And and also liable for any other penalties that may be applicable in between. Right. So it's um it's it's you know there's a lot that goes along with it. So it's just because it's here. And just because, you know, it may have a state issue title does not mean that it's legal. Right. And, uh, you know, and there's a number of people who are finding that out the hard way, unfortunately. Um, and I and I do see vehicles that come across the border illegally, mm-hmm. um, you know, be it from from Mexico or Canada. Um, but it's, um, you know, it's just something that if you if you do your homework, you know, if you know, if it seems like it's too good to be too good to be true. Then it probably is, yeah. Um, you know, and that if if you're looking at buying something which you have the suspicion is illegal, then you're you're doing so at your own risk, right? Um, because because you know the the chances are that you know something might happen, and uh, you know if insurance company or I mean they're not going to be responsible for it. They're, right. they're just going to wash their hands of it and walk away, right? So you know that's it. That's your problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And that's a huge, huge potential risk that you have this uh, this car and something happens. And and I think that that's funny because we, we you know, we chat with people every once in a while. Oh, I'm, you know, doing this or doing that and said, well, yeah, I mean, just because you get away with it and, the, you know, the DHS or someone doesn't come after you doesn't mean that, you know, if you were ever in an accident or if the car got stolen, um, you know, that, that that would be it, then it's gone. Uh, you know, and the insurance is not necessarily uh, going to pay for that if, in fact, they find out that uh, it's not something you should have had there anyway. So I've actually been hired as a consultant on and more than one case or matter involving vehicles, which were just that, that they mm. were VIN, VIN swapped vehicles mm. where the owner, the owner didn't realize that they were buying a, a right. VIN swapped vehicle and then was faced with a, a liability issue or a potential liability issue that they didn't want to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of one case in particular, um, but I, I, and I've had several but uh, where where the vehicle actually the um, the state actually intervened um, mm. and and seized the vehicle in question, so it wasn't even the federal government we're talking about this time. This was a, a state law matter, right? And uh, I actually ended up working with the with the state police in that state to identify the vehicle, and um, you know, and was actually able to show that it was not the vehicle that it was claimed to be, mm. um, and the the vehicle actually ended up. Um, being destroyed mm. uh I, i'm sorry to say but um yeah. but yeah it was a it, it was a fairly involved matter and um but actually that my involvement with with the state law enforcement officer in that aspect actually led me um to having involvement with a with a um a group called the international association of auto theft investigators mm. um and actually lectured at their conference uh, just a couple of years ago their international conferences that were but um, yeah, and it just uh, it's interesting because it, you know it's a relatively small world, no matter which way you look at it, and uh, yeah. it's uh, the communities they, they overlap with each other, and the just things that you see you know time after time when you're when you're dealing with these vehicles, and um, you know I don't want anybody to think that law enforcement isn't looking for these things because they are. Right. Um, you know, it's just it's just a matter of how you know how you're going about it. You know, and it's just something that you have to be you have to be mindful of. Um, you know, if you don't know, I, I have a heartbreaking story involving a, a client of mine. I do a lot of work with the U.S. military service mm-hmm. members, um, and uh, I have a relationship with the with the government contractor who are sh- responsible for shipping uh, back when they refer to as POVs or privately owned vehicles from right. overseas. Yeah, and um, it 
long story, and I, and I won't go through all of that background, but uh, I developed a relationship with this company over the last several years. And, um, you know, I it, it created and put in the, um, the basically the, the protocol they use for vetting vehicles before they ship back to the U.S. Right. And so, um, at any rate, the, and the vehicles that don't qualify or end up having issues end up getting referred to me. Well, a gentleman got referred to me uh, who had a, um, a, a Land Rover that he had owned for, at that point, a couple of years while stationed overseas. And uh, unfortunately, um, as it, the, when the vehicle got referred to me, I, I had to break the news to the, to the owner that the vehicle had been previously stolen. Mm. And, uh, and he, he was not aware. Um, and it's just was really unfortunate because again, for a lot of Land Rover owners, you know, these vehicles do become like members of the family. Yeah. And so I felt like I was, you know, telling him he was going to have to put his dog down, um, because the vehicle wasn't ever going to be able to come back to the U S there was nothing right. that he could do or change about that. Right. And so, uh, it was really unfortunate, unfortunate circumstance for him. I mean, and, th- and that happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, so what can people do then, Will, to, you know, if you are starting down the journey of bringing a Land Rover in from outside of the uh, country, maybe even before, and and I always suggest that people do call someone like yourself and get them involved uh, early on, because if you're only ever going to import one car in your life, it really isn't something you want to become an expert in overnight. There's no value to that. As we we often say, if you can borrow or rent a tool that you're only going to use once, you're much better off than having spent a bunch of money on something you're ever going to, oh, you're only ever going to use once. And so what are some things that, that people can do, um, again, even before someone like yourself gets involved to make sure that they don't find themselves in a situation where, uh, they're going to have a problem at the border. They're going to have a problem down. Well, the road. I mean, so yeah, there's a fair amount of homework that just, um, that it comes into play up front. And, um, you know, if you're knowledgeable about vehicles, then, then you have an advantage. If you're not knowledgeable about vi- vehicles, then the best thing you can do is hire somebody who is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the, the first thing that I tell people, because a lot of the question, or a lot of times the question that I get very often is, do you help source vehicles, you know, for right. somebody who's looking for one? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have in the past under very limited circumstances, mm-hmm. but it's it, sourcing vehicles is a very time consuming endeavor. Um, and, uh, also, you know, it's, it's a, it's hard a lot of times to be able to determine, you know, a vehicle's eligibility, let alone it's just overall condition when I'm sat behind a computer screen like this. So it's, it's best off, um, to have somebody who's local who can look at a vehicle, but then that raises a whole nother uh, set of, you know, questions. Cause I have also had clients who, you know, been taken for tens of thousands of dollars, by people who represented themselves to be good people, you know, who right. were aiding people in, in purchasing vehicles overseas who, uh, upon, you know, arrival of their, their vehicle found that they really had was junk. Mm-hmm. It was, it was nothing that was good. And so, yep. you know, the, there, there is no substitute for an in-person inspection, you know, mm-hmm. of a vehicle prior to purchase and or prior to import. And if, if you're not knowledgeable about what you're looking at, then it's best to get somebody that you know and trust who can do it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have somebody you know or trust that can do it, then you need to ask for a referral from somebody that you know and trust who right. can provide you with a referral. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's one of the things that we've worked uh, in my office. And I say we, I, I have um, a couple of people that, that help me out, you know, um, here and there, and they're, they're overseas. 
um, to work when it comes to inspections like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so depending on where they are, but, um, but yeah, I mean, crawling around underneath the vehicle, not just to determine whether or not it meets the eligibility requirements, but also just to make sure that you're getting a good vehicle in yeah. general. You know, the, 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 I mean, you hear horror stories coming out of certain countries and I don't mean to lay them on the UK, but we're, um, you know, people, you know, landowners in particular will often have, you know, issues with chassis rot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen cases where, you know, somebody will take newspaper, stuff it into the chassis rail, cover it with, with filler, yeah. paint it black and represent it as a good vehicle. And unless you go check it, you would have no way of knowing just by visually looking at it. Yeah. And uh, it's horrifying because the vehicles are, are rolling death traps. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a safety thing, and and obviously, anytime anyone is misrepresenting, that's that's it's 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 tricky, and it's tricky. Uh, you know, not everyone can afford to fly overseas, and certainly now it's not it's not exactly the the best time to do that to look at a car. Um, it is always great if you could take that trip and say, you know, I'm going to go to the UK. I've got five cars that I'm interested. In. I'm going to go look at them, and I'm going to take one. You know, I'm going to start the process on one of them. Not everybody has that, um, and you know, and you know, there are lots of great importers here locally too that have uh, inventory sort of. And uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Of just if maybe you're not quite at the point where you can bring something in yourself about uh, you know approaching somebody that has inventory here locally. Yeah, I mean there are good importers here in the U.S. who buy vehicles, of course, for resale, and um, you know again by doing so they're taking the risks, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, with risks comes reward, and obviously, uh, you know, if you're going to pay somewhat of a premium for a vehicle that's already here in the U.S., there are you know less costly vehicles that can be had, but again, there's a lot more legwork that goes into that. Yeah. You know, and there and there should be cost involved up front. You know, and this, one of the things that I do is, um, you know, where I'm not being asked to source a vehicle, but I am being asked, you know, whether or not it's possible to inspect it. Then I have people that I can refer to that are overseas um, who can go perform inspections, you know, for a fee um, mm-hmm. and be able to report back on, you know, what t- the vehicle looks like, whether it is not. Um, another thing that I often times will do um, in these cases, and again, I don't mean to sound prejudiced in this regard, but um, but it's, it's just a matter of fact that if, uh, if you're an American, for instance, mm-hmm. and you're looking, you're contacting a, a seller who's in France, yeah. you know, when they, when they see American, they think dollar signs, right. you know, and multiple dollar signs. So <laughs> the, 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 the tendency is, you know, if you're, if you're somebody in a foreign country that if, and you're approached by American, then the price goes up. Right. Um, whereas if you have somebody that you're dealing with local who can kind of facilitate the transaction, um, there's less of that involved. You, know, you can you can keep the negotiating uh, within a, a reasonable range without fear of it, you know, skyrocketing all of a sudden. Um, but, yeah, I've, again, I've seen it, this happen in more than one case where somebody just, you know, you know, and say, oh, you're American. Well, then the price is more. <laughs> then, then here's the price. Yeah, exactly. So, Will, if, if people are interested in getting a hold of you and uh, either retaining your services, hopefully before there's an issue, or God forbid, if they're uh, in a bit of uh, a troubling spot, what's the easiest way to do that? So, um, then go to my website, uh, defenderofdefenders.com. I'd like to add, by the way, that I didn't give myself that name. That was one that was given to me by the community. Um, it, I liked it, though, so I went ahead Absolutely. and embraced it. The best um, Nicknames uh, are are ones you uh, sort of a, a title, if you will, that has been uh, imposed by the community, and I think very rightfully so. Yeah, I just didn't want to give this idea that I was 
conceded <laughs> in any way. I mean, I, it just it was it was actually a, a friend in the a defender community. His name is Mark, mm-hmm. um, and he 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 posted it, and it just stuck. And so I just I just went with it. Um, but uh, I mean, so you contact me that way. Uh, I, I I will. Uh, in full disclosure, it's just me for the most part here. So um, there tends to be a backlog of emails and it mm-hmm. takes me a little while. It, eventually, one of these days, I think I'm going to have to break down and hire somebody to mm-hmm. to work with me full time to kind of vet through and, and keep everybody up to date. But um, but you can send me an email. Uh, it's probably the best way. You can call, but these days, um, because of the number of phone calls I tend to get, I, I tend to to let them go to voicemail and have to mm-hmm. sort through them later. Um, it's just not feasible for me to keep with keep up with them all the time and um you know in addition to like the normal imports because so, we we handle vehicle imports through my office and i have somebody that is that does assist me with that on a part-time basis mm-hmm. um basically uh, handling clients but i also have like regular full-time clients one of whom is a a, a new vehicle manufacturer so mm-hmm. um you know parts etc you know final assembly for the vehicles they built are actually um are is actually done here in the u.s but okay. they're uh, the, the parts are actually imported from overseas mm-hmm. Excuse me. And so, um, so yeah. And then, so I have them as a, a full-time client as well too. And, um, you know, I have, you know, a different array of ongoing cases. I have one case that's pending before the U S court of international trade right now, mm-hmm. uh, with regard to a, a vehicle import issue, um, actually a classification issue. Mm. Um, and actually on that subject, there is, um, something for the Landover community, I think is fairly pertinent, mm-hmm. but, um, U S customs of its own accord, not really involved with any other government agencies, but they they've really clamped down on the vehicle classifications where it comes to um, defenders, uh, and by that I mean um, passenger vehicles versus um, vehicles. Well, which they term or commercial vehicles, right. vehicles for the tr- transport of goods, and there's a significant rate difference in the duty. Mm. So for a passenger vehicle, it's two and a half percent. Um, you know, for a based on the purchase price or the, the value of the vehicle mm-hmm. versus for a truck or or van, um, that jumps up to twenty five percent. So it's a one thousand percent increase over the passenger vehicle. Wow! Duty. But it's um, but you know, it can you know, if you're somebody who's looking at buying one of these high dollar um, Defender restorations, um, you know, and it's not something that was originally classed as a as a station wagon. All right. Then you're you're potentially being sub. So if you're look, you know, if you're looking at buying a hundred thousand dollar Defender, then you are, uh, you know, like a one thirty. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a twenty five thousand dollar duty price tag that's going to wow. go on top of that. So it's just something that you need to be mindful of. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're looking or purchasing a vehicle like that, and that you know, again, you can step that back down all the way back to, you know, vehicles that are within a you know more normal price range. But I mean, it it seems like the prices for these vehicles only seem to be going up. Only seems um, to be going up. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting, I think, with the new Defender now and uh, things like the Ineos Grinder, uh, Grenadier and, and things like that, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, few years for vintage Defenders, but it doesn't seem like the uh, desire uh, for them certainly is not waning. If anything, it's uh, I think it's only uh, it's only building. So before we let you go, uh, well, there is a, a sort of tradition amongst guests here. Uh, the lightning 
round, which normally Ike does, but I'm going to have to fill in uh, as best as I can uh, this afternoon. Uh, so basically, here's how it works. We've got a series of questions, and uh, pick someone at random, and this will uh, help uh, determine your uh, preference for a Land Rover vehicle. So are you ready for the lightning round, Well, Yes, let's do it. Okay, here we go. Ready? Leaves or coils? Coils. Gas or diesel? Mm, ooh, uh, gas. Hard top or soft top? Oh, man. Uh... <laughs> I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with soft top. All right, bronze green or tambora orange? Bronze green. Best way to get ninety weight out of your underpants? <laughs> Just hang it outside and let it drift. <laughs> import or export? Uh, import. Port of Los Angeles or Port of New Jersey? Uh, I'd rather I don't know. I ship more vehicles into New Jersey, but I do like visiting Los Angeles. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say Los Angeles. Sure, why not? All right. Perfect. Well, thank you, Will. We appreciated the uh, time tonight. Uh, fantastic information. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have you on again because I think the uh, the topic of importing Land Rovers from overseas is uh, only going to become uh, more uh, as uh, you know as as those cars get older and more interesting cars can come in and and all that. We didn't even really touch on the twenty five year rule, so definitely uh, let's let's try and get you back in the future uh, for a, for a round two, as it is absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure something people love. So. So thanks again, Will. Yes, sir. I'd love to. And I uh, look forward. Thanks again for having me. All right. Cheers for now. All right. And we're back. And Ike, uh, uh, welcome back. How was the uh, possum fight? Woo! It was uh, it was touch and go there for a minute, but the entire family was safely relocated from the doormobile to uh, a more natural habitat. So safe uh, to a say. Series, a Series 3 lightweight. Series three lightweight. It was actually a P thirty eight Range Rover Vitesse. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, it's good. They're very comfortable uh, leather interior. They're uh, they're happy. Uh, yeah, guaranteed to be stationary too. Yeah, there's no way that's moving. Yeah. No way that's they, moving. Yeah, that thing uh, lost a timing chain uh, in the uh, in the early two thousands and hasn't moved since. Yep. Yeah, yep. Good times. All right. Well, great uh, conversation uh, with Will. Uh, he's a, uh, as always, a great uh, orator of all things illegal and uh, import. And, uh, you know, again, just sort of things to do before you, uh, you know, end up with a vehicle you own in Spain. Uh, and God forbid it gets to the port and then has to go back to Spain or uh, even worse, gets crushed. So um, Will's a great resource there. Uh, again, can be contacted through his uh, website, Defender of defenders.com yeah which, sorry uh, to have missed that yeah no it was a good time he says hello by the way and we'll catch him on the next time I think we'll have Will on again at some point in the future again to talk uh, a little bit more about the 25 year rule and some of those things that we didn't really have a chance uh, to go deeply uh, in in depth in because he's a, a wealth of knowledge in that front so Ike there is a uh, speaking of the 25 year rule a listener question uh, that has nothing to do with the 25 year rule from our good friend uh, on page Patreon, uh, Jeff, uh, last initial E, as we want to maintain everyone's uh, anonymity. He asks, and this is a, a, an interesting question um, and uh, a little spooky. Um, my left headlight is much dimmer than my right headlight. In high and low beam, I've checked fuses and the bulbs, meaning I think he switched bulbs. Um, 
What could it be? Huh. Well, uh, you know, this uh, electrical problems in general can be uh, somewhat hard to diagnose, especially at a distance. But uh, I think we can come up with a short list of uh, of We're going to set that up as a contest from across the street. What's wrong with this wiring? (laughs) (laughs) Have you checked the fuses? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, you'd you'd be surprised. I get a lot of uh, questions um, from customers calling over the phone. Yeah. uh, What's the sound? What's this sound? <laughs> Frequently, that that does happen. You know, I'm driving along and it's making a sound. What is it? You know, yeah. sort of thing. Um, or, do you have them then perform the sound for you? Uh, I do. I, I often feel like do. that that could be a segment <laughs> on the show. I mean, we need to do that. You know, I I try to have them do it at least three times. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the first one's all you really need. The second two are purely for entertainment. <laughs> it sounds like you have monkeys in your car. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're bad at doing car impressions. I don't know. Uh, uh, I, that reminds me of the uh, the cartoon from the series one owner's manual. You know, the, the that says uh, if the car fails to start, uh, ascertain why. And it has the little cartoon of the guy with the hood open, and uh, there's a pig in the engine compartment. <laughs> I love that. I, I love do. that. Yeah, in the manual for a car that you buy from a company, that is the cartoon that's it's literally. Literally, the first picture on the first page of that manual is um, is like a, a guy with the whole rear axle apart <laughs> sitting on the floor. That's the first picture in the manual. Yeah, you really, you really, they're upfront about what you're in for. It's yeah. good. It's yeah, good. it's uh, it's hilarious. But yeah. uh, at any rate, back to the headlight. I think that um, you know, there's certainly a couple things that can cause a dim headlight, and uh, you know, whether you're working on a, a Range Rover or a Discovery or a series truck or whatever, uh, you know, they headlights all need the same things. You know, they all need power and they all mm-hmm. need a ground, mm-hmm. and so it, you're clearly getting power because you've yep. got. Um, You've got, it's on. It's on. Yeah. So we know it's getting power, but uh, it, you know you can make sure that the terminals are not corroded. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it's not getting mm-hmm. enough power. You could put a mm-hmm. um, a multimeter on that. Make sure that there's not a voltage drop there. Mm-hmm. At that headlight, make sure it's getting full voltage. Um, and you can also check the ground, you know, and make sure yeah. that the ground is clean and tight and, uh, you know, well secured against a metal part of the framer body. I can't rem- I, don't, I don't know what Jeff drives or what Jeff has, but um, uh, it's a great question. Actually, I didn't ask. I don't know. I yeah, don't know. I assume that- it's a I assume it's a Land Rover. I, I suspect that's Rover. true, but there are different types. And, I believe uh, it's a series Land Rover that isn't a series one. I'll bet it's a two, two A, or three. I think we can narrow it down to that. Let's let's guess what Jeff has. <laughs> let's uh, guess what he has. <laughs> but uh, if it's a series Land Rover, um, there is a ground on the radiator panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both of the headlights ground usually to the same point. Typically, mm-hmm. it's uh, um, a, a small bolt. Yeah. In the like, just just right around the hood latch, and yeah. that should have uh, two ring terminals that are are uh, uh, follow out to the the ground wires for the headlights, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that that guy you know should have a star washer on it so that it makes a good yeah, uh, ground, a good, a good cut. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so that's important to check that ground. I, I, I suspect I've seen that might sometimes be the, the bullet uh, the bullet terminals, uh, you know, like yeah. uh, the, that allow you to disconnect the wings from the car. Uh, you know, that'll get it'll get shitty in there, or there'll be a little bit of you know a little bit of wobbliness. There's a tool I realize that Moss sells. I've never known there was a tool that like I guess like 
puts that together better, it's because Jaguar owners, I guess, have very poor hand strength. And so pushing them together with their fingers would be impossible. So there's a special $30 tool that does it. But I uh, mm. use and sell that tool as well, you know, mm. because uh, after doing an entire harness of those little things, yeah. you will you will also have blisters on your fingertips. Yeah, it, it definitely is rough on your hands. I just didn't realize there was a tool all these years. I've just been like jamming them together manually and I could have had a tool. Yeah, and when you do that, you can't, you know, the the insulation on the sleeve sticks yeah. out past the, the metal connector mm-hmm. inside. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot physically get the bullets, you know, fully seated with yeah. your fingers. I do it with a little a flat-headed screwdriver, but that's this tool seems much more elegant. It's I no, it, yeah. it's it's worth having. All you right, can make you one. can make you can make your own. You don't need a piss pin. That's speaking of which, I am in the I'm in the midst of making uh, a few uh, steering uh, relay assembly tools. As I got so frustrated trying to do all of the crazy things that people suggest online, I just looked up what the Land Rover tool, the factory tool, is, and it's it like the simplest thing in the world. So it's. It's pretty yeah, basic. Laser it's cut, pretty basic. laser cut some plates and welding some bars oh, on cool. them, and it's great. You know, I use this company. Uh, I've just tried them because a friend is using it on his uh, on his Humvee electric conversion, which is pretty a uh, pretty amazing separate thing. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, Oshcut. Which does, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, they're a laser mm-hmm. cutting company out in the Midwest and they did a great job. It was very easy. Just upload uh, an SVG file to them and uh, a couple days later you get some uh, steel cut parts. So it was, it was great. It was really good. Yeah. Let's, let's finish uh, addressing Jeff's mm-hmm. headlight right. oh, issue. Yeah. The other thing Jeff can check is that he has the same type of bulb in oh, both sides. Yeah. You know, it's frequent for one to burn out and one to be replaced and then the two don't match. And uh, then you can, Definitely see a difference in brightness oh, yeah, or dimness good point. between the good two. Point. Maybe, maybe try moving, uh, although it's a little bit of work, moving the bulb from the left side to the right side to see if the problem goes with the bulb or if it uh, stays with the socket. At least that allows you to narrow it down to to one thing. You could also have a possum chewing on your wiring. It could be a possum. Wiring possums are a big, big issue, especially this time of year. Um, so speaking of patrons, uh, patrons, 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 patron which is a transformer, I believe. He, he transforms into uh, support for your podcast. Anyways, um, the uh, all of our patrons, uh, and anyone, in fact, who signs up uh, this week. Uh, so if you become a patron uh, before uh, Friday, the 22nd of uh, Her Majesty's October, then uh, you will receive, along with all of our current uh, patrons, a special edition sticker set. We're talking about set. every special edition sticker we currently have. The Camel Trophy Glitter sticker, the Metallic 80-inch, and a brand new holographic underpowered hour logo. We're talking wow, about a, a holographic, uh, mirror-y, kind of rainbow-y holographic logo. You will receive uh, all three of those stickers in the mail, mailed to your home uh, or business. But wait, there's more. What? <laughs> in fact if you are not a patron for whatever reason um you should be but if you're not that's fine you can visit our brand new underpowered hour store it's true it's beautiful it's, true. it's uh it, downtown new york in Times square two hundred thousand dollars a month in rent but worth it uh we, you know we sell nine things <laughs> support so, your land your local land rover podcast yeah so if you uh are interested in visiting the underpowered hour shop to pick up all of the latest underpowered hour merch stickers t-shirt 
that's it. So much swag. So much, so many stickers. There is more stuff coming. We're in the we're in the midst of negotiating some uh, overseals, uh, overseas uh, overseals, some deals with seals uh, on uh, any number of things. Hats that Ike has worn, uh, old things from around Ike's workshop, uh, mm. steering relay assembly tools that are shoddily welded mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things. I have a good supply of cracked exhaust manifolds that will be laser etched with the underpowered hour logo that we will send directly to your Yeah, and you actually have to buy something on the store to prevent that from happening. (laughs) Otherwise, we will find uh, a way to get it to you. So make sure you buy a sticker so that Ike doesn't send you any garbage. Um, And of course, that store can be accessed through the underpowered hour website which is uh underpoweredhour.com and there you can listen to the show of course you can uh, shop you can uh, become a patron you can uh visit ike's website uh, the uh, venerable pangolin 4x4 you can visit uh, my website uh, the bears collection and uh look at uh you know whatever whatever we've got going on over there it's, uh, you can then uh, probably go to the podcast from each one of our websites and uh, continue an endless circle of linking back and forth and back and forth so um hours of entertainment for you and your family entertainment so that's it for this week ike it was a great show really good talking to will glad you haven't uh, suffered any long-term possum wounds and uh we'll see you uh, next week all right steven i'm looking forward to it Underpowered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss. Pavel Svartov composed and performed our theme music. Consider supporting the show on Patreon, and if you already do, thank you. Your support makes the show possible. For even more, check out our Instagram or Facebook. <laughs>